You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. After the death of Moses, the servant of Yahweh, Yahweh said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous." Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, Pass through the midst of the camp, and command the people, Prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan, to go in to take possession of the land that Yahweh your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of Yahweh, commanded you, saying, Yahweh your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them, until Yahweh gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that Yahweh your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession, and shall possess it, the land that Moses the servant of Yahweh gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered, Joshua, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so will we obey you. Only may Yahweh your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 679 of this podcast. Today is Friday, August 4th, 2023. That was the first chapter of the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. 
and we're off to a good start. We have God commissioning Joshua. We have Joshua assuming command. Also, we have the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh pledging to, yes, go with the rest of the tribes as armed men to battle, to war, leaving their wives and their children, leaving their families in the cities on the other side of the Jordan and only returning to them once they have helped the rest of the tribes, the rest of their brothers in Israel to take possession of their inheritance. But before we get into any more about chapter one, I'll just read for you briefly the introduction from Logos, logos logos.com. And I quote, the five books of Moses anticipated the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham regarding the promised land. Now, either about 1400 or 1220 BC, through a string of military victories under Joshua, Israel conquered the land and divided it among the 12 tribes. In these battles, it became evident that God fights for his people when they are strong and courageous and put their full trust in him. At the close of the book, Joshua charged the people to remain faithful to God and to obey his commands, and the people agreed to do so. Quote, as for me and my house, end quote, said Joshua, we will serve Yahweh. Although anonymous, the book appears to contain eyewitness testimony, some of which may have been written by Joshua himself. So there you go. There's a broad overview, and you're going to notice that this is a major theme. Be strong and courageous comes up quite a lot again and again. Be very strong, be very courageous, be strong and courageous. Have we mentioned that you need to be strong? Have we mentioned the need for courage here? You need to be courageous. That's a big theme. And it's a theme that I think with all the talk these days about toxic masculinity and upending gender roles, or even there being such a thing as gender, this book is a challenge for the modern reader in a number of ways, but it's also a encouragement. We're told, be strong and courageous, as men in particular in these chapters, not that we're Joshua, not that we are Israel, not that it's a one-to-one, but that's not the point. The point is, God wants his man to be strong and courageous. There are limitations to your strength. Understand those, know those. That's wise. But it is good for men to be strong. It is good for men to be brave. And in our day, we have made strength into a kind of vice, as though strength is only ever a mark of the oppressors. And those who are weak, we regard as victims Therefore, they must be correct. If they suffer and they're weak, then they must be correct. Well, wait a second. It takes a little bit more than that to determine whether they are in the right. They could be weak because they are lazy. They could be weak because they're foolish. They could be weak because they are cowards and they are not willing to do anything with their strength. And so they don't go and get that strength in the first place. They're very selfish and immature and ultimately ungodly. As a husband, as a father, if my job is to provide and protect, there are limitations to my provisional capacity, to my protective capacity, 
Again, it's wise for me to know that. It's wise for me to make note of where those limitations are, but it's also good, as we read in Proverbs, for me to augment my strength. It's wise for me to try and get strength. Now, wisdom is its own kind of strength, but strength here has to do with strength of character, for one thing, also actual literal strength, strength of arms. It's good to work out your body, to exercise, to do physical work in a way that builds strength. It's good for you to eat foods and drink drinks that are going to make you stronger instead of weaker. And we see strength and courage very much called for, commanded even. It's not even a, oh yeah, that's fine. That's one way to live your life. It's a command. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. In the context of Joshua, you've got Joshua leading the men of Israel as they are taking possession of their inheritance, the promised land, that land which God had promised to their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You have strength being commanded because it takes strength to fight. And it takes a certain degree of strength to command the respect of other men. If you don't have any strength and then you are supposed to be leading these other men, maybe they push you around. Maybe they don't take you seriously. Maybe they bully you. You want to get strength so that they're going to take you seriously. Also, you need to be courageous so that you're not misleading them. You're not being a coward and just hiding in your tents and sending them off to do all of the hard work because, again, that's going to undermine morale. That's going to mislead the men who are following after you. And just imagine, if you're one of these men, the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, if you're one of the men of those two tribes and the one half-tribe, if you have left your wives and your children in these cities that you took possession of earlier in the narrative, earlier in the story, earlier in the timeline, if you're one of these men, And you've said, okay, we're not going to return. We're not going to settle ourselves. We just want to settle our wives and our children and our livestock here. But we're not going to settle ourselves until we have helped everyone else to possess their inheritance as well. If Joshua is lackluster, if he's ho-hum, if he's meh about it, if he's always equivocating, if he's always vacillating, if he's always unclear about whether we want to do X, Y, or Z, if he's always timid or sometimes he's bold, sometimes he's timid, but you never know which Joshua you're going to get. At a certain point, that is going to bring in a lot of doubts, a lot of concerns and frustrations about what are we doing here, right? What are we doing? Where are we going? Why am I not home already? And maybe it's Joshua's fault. But if Joshua is faithful to obey what God is calling him to, commanding him to do, be strong and courageous. Those men are going to also be strong and courageous. And so this command to Joshua is not just a command to Joshua. It's a command which consequences will produce an effect in the other men thereby. The other men are going to be strong and courageous if Joshua is strong and courageous. And that's important for us to recognize. That's important for us to know. I personally have 
seven sons and an eighth on the way. Praise God. There's an eighth son due to be born in November. Actually, on my birthday, I maintain. Nathaniel Job Mullet, growing strong. Lauren, my wife, just had an ultrasound appointment yesterday in Loveland. And Nathaniel's doing very well. He's got a strong face. She showed me the ultrasound images, the 3D ultrasound images. He's got a strong face. He's a very handsome lad, in my opinion, in our opinion. But as the father to seven sons with an eighth, now in the third trimester, I understand what this is about a little bit differently, perhaps, than those who don't have any sons, or they don't have very many sons, or maybe they only have daughters. I understand what this means a little bit differently because I have to have a certain degree of strength in order to earn, as it were, inspire, as it were, the confidence of my sons in order to set a good example for them. And dare I say it, so much of this toxic masculinity business these days is, on the one hand, Christians who have glorified weakness, they have glorified cowardice and spiritualized it, and then lost the plot on what men are supposed to be about, but maybe they have acceptance in the church, and so it's allowed to pass. There's strength that comes from being in the church and being able to call on others in the church in times of need, but they lack strength personally and they lack courage personally, in part because they have been brainwashed by broader society and by far too much trendy Christian literature into being weak, trying to be weak, aspiring to being weak. Now, it's one thing if you are weak, you have been ill, you've been sick, you have a job that just doesn't tax you physically at all, especially in this day and age. There are a lot of jobs that are just not all that physically demanding. And unfortunately, the stats bear out that a lot of the people who are in churches in our day are the folks that went off to college and they sit behind a desk or they do something with their brain and with their speaking and thinking more than they do anything with their hands. They don't work with their hands. Most of the people who are in the church who are men. They're more academic or white-collar professionals, not so much in the blue-collar in many cases across the country. And also, a lot of the pastors, they go off to seminary, and what do they do? Do they do anything physically demanding at the seminary? You know, seminaries are not typically known for their great sports teams. They're not typically known for being places that athletes go to. Not to say you don't have athletes that go off to seminary. I have plenty in my extended family who are athletic and also they've been to seminary and they are pastors. But when they get out of seminary and they take up the pastorate, they're not necessarily called to, expected to, required to be strong and courageous. And so what kind of an example do they set? Maybe one where they keep themselves fit enough to be able to keep up with their kids and to be able to be attractive to their wives and to not look 
slovenly, but they do enough to be perhaps respectable. In some circles, they don't. It really depends. In some circles, it's potluck every Sunday, and the pastor might be significantly overweight. In other circles, he's not expected to be strong at all, and so also he's not expected to do work with his hands. He's expected to study, do sermon prep, counseling. He's expected to coordinate and be an administrator first and foremost, but how much of that requires physical strength? How much of that requires courage? Well, some of it does actually. It takes courage to give godly counsel to somebody who doesn't want to hear it. It does take courage to evangelize if that's what you're doing in a part of town or in a part of the country or in a part of the world where that's not going to be well received. But it's not the same kind of courage. It's not the same kind of courage that we're reading about here where there's a martial prowess. There is a going out and fighting and battling and making war and conquering. For one, Joshua and the men of Israel are going to be doing some killing. That's just what it is. That's what battle is. That's what war is. For another thing, they're going to be endeavoring to fight in such a way as to not be killed themselves. And Yahweh fights for them, absolutely. But Yahweh does not command Joshua and the men of Israel to be weak and cowardly so that his fighting on their behalf will be all the more obviously what gave them the battle. He commands. He doesn't just give Joshua the option. He doesn't just say, you know, "Eh, that's okay, right? That's one way to live your life if you choose to be strong and courageous. But, you know, just don't expect that everybody is supposed to do that in order to be manly. No, there's none of that. Not a lick of it. Also, what's interesting is there is no egalitarianism here. None. None whatsoever. The men of the tribe of Reuben and Gad the half-tribe of Manasseh, the men are the ones who are crossing over the Jordan with the rest of Israel, leaving their wives and their children and their livestock behind. Why? Because the fighting is done there. The fighting continues across the river. They're not taking their wives and their children with them because war is no place for women. War is for men. Men should be fighting and killing and dying and war, and women are not suited for it. So also, it would be unnatural, it would be perverse after a fashion, it would be foolish if it were the men staying behind in these cities and sending off their women across the River Jordan to go and take possession of the land. There's none of that, not even a trace of it. No thank you to all of our men and women in uniform who have served in the armed forces. None of that. No, no, it's men right? It's men and it should be men. And it's always supposed to be men. It's only supposed to be the men. Not to say women don't have their moments here and there, but that's the exception. And the rule is men. And that's another way in which the book of Joshua is foreign to us. But it's foreign to us because the progressives in possession of seminaries and universities and K-12 through education in the public schools and the media and the halls of power in our civil government, the progressives have made it their mission in life for decades and even longer than decades 
for over a century at this point. They've made it their mission to upend all of this. And one of the things I'll say, in prep for reading through the book of Joshua, just to understand it better, I checked out a YouTube video from The Bible Project. And I like The Bible Project. I think they do phenomenal work. Short videos with illustrations explaining books of the Bible. They do a very fine job. They have excellent posters. If you ever get a hold of their posters, they're really good. But then their animations on their YouTube videos are basically those posters being drawn out, written out in such a way that you can follow along with the narrator what is the story of this book? What is the background? What is the context? What is the big theme, the major theme? What are some of the minor themes? What are the takeaways supposed to be for this book of the Bible? I watched their video about the book of Joshua, their summary, complete animated overview. And for the most part, it's good, but then I don't approve of, I don't agree with the way that they handle the commands to utterly destroy and annihilate certain groups. I don't like the way that they handle that. And why I say that is they come to the hard passage and they basically say, oh, that was just hyperbole. God didn't really mean it. They didn't phrase it that way, but that's what I'm hearing. God didn't really mean what he said there. Well, then wait a second. If that's the case, if God didn't really mean destroy everything that lives in these certain people groups, if God didn't really mean it, then why is there a distinction with regards to the cities who are not part of those nations? Why is there a distinction? And oh, by the way, even with the cities that are not part of, not, not part of those nations, God says, if you take the city from them, when you take the city from those other peoples, if they did not surrender, if they did not accept peace terms when you offered them, when you take the city, you put every man to the sword, every man to the sword, but the women and the children you will take as your servants, as your slaves, essentially. Why does God say that as a distinction from the other people groups? Oh, by the way, also, why when we come to the reign of King Saul later on, why is Samuel so incensed at even the bleeding of sheep? The sheep are buying, and that is to say, Saul and his army have not been obedient. They were supposed to utterly annihilate, destroy everything that breathes, kill everything, and They had a better idea. They thought they knew better and they would do what they wanted, what they thought best. I don't like that the Bible project basically says, yeah, God didn't mean it. No, that's what Saul thought. Saul thought that God didn't really mean it. Surely not. It would be a mistake for us to suppose that God didn't mean it. But it's a hard passage. It is. And so that's somewhat of the easy way out. But it's also not obedience to be strong and courageous. And what I mean is, it takes courage to come to those hard passages and admit, no, it definitely says that. I don't understand quite how that squares. 
You know, in our minds, in our day, in the year 2023 with the Geneva Convention and the schemes of the internationalists for over a century in the making of aggressive war, illegal according to international law, all of that has conditioned us to look with horror at the idea of killing everything that lives in certain towns and cities. That has conditioned us to say, that's an atrocity, that's evil. But wait a second, it's just like with the question of slavery. If we see slavery in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and we see God regulating it, what is our instinct there as well? It's a very similar kind of instinct to say, oh, surely that wasn't real slavery. That's not what God meant. Surely that's not what he meant. Yeah, I know it says that, but that can't be what he meant because liberty is the highest good, right? God has to be for liberation of people. And I don't, I wouldn't take that seriously. Let's, let's talk about something else. No, no, no. That is not courageous. That is a fear of man issue, making itself manifest as we come to the text. We're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus, not conformed to the pattern of this world. And yet, We are tempted to chicken out. We're tempted to come to those hard passages and be wimps about it because what will people think of us, right? Yeah, I I agree. Yeah, that slavery thing, that's, that is a tough one. That is a tough one. I would agree with you. Yeah, yep, yep. No, 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 no. Agree with God. How about that? Agree with God. Uh, Same also with the question of polygamy, which I know I've been talking about quite a lot, but that's because I feel a pressing need to push back on this arbitrary claim that we get to declare what is objectively sin and speak for God thereby. If God has not declared something a sin, then I'm sorry. I'm not prepared to grant to anyone, any human being, the unilateral permission or standing or clout, or authority to start declaring things sin that God didn't say were sin. Any more than I'm okay with, and for exactly the same reason, I have to push back on the other hand, for those who say certain sexual behaviors, certain romantic arrangements and lifestyles and life choices and self-identifying characteristics are not sin, even though God did say that they're sin, It's not okay for somebody to reserve to themselves the right to declare this or that is not a sin because, well, the principle is this. Whoa, 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 whoa. You know what? The principle should be we take seriously what God has already communicated on this. If God said that it's a sin, then it's a sin. You might not like that it's a sin. You might not want it to be a sin. You might not like at all the idea of calling to repentance those who are proud, loud and proud about this particular sin. But that's where, again, we go back to Joshua being commanded, be strong and courageous, only be strong and very courageous because you're going to need bravery to tell these people that they're wrong. But see, there's a problem of authority. If you have people with some authority, humanly speaking, saying because we have some authority, we're going to unilaterally declare what is and isn't a sin. And if you disagree, if you tell us we're wrong and that that's not how that works, We're going to say, you're actually the one sinning now because you're not being subject to authority. Wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. Let's go back, right? You're unilaterally declaring not a sin, certain things that God said were sins, or declaring sins, what God didn't say were sins. How do I know you're not just making it up 
here too, that it's a sin for me to disagree with and contradict you and challenge what your claim is here. If it's just you making it up as you go, ah, no thanks. I can do that. It'll be a lot more fun for me if I just do that. But then neither of us should be doing that. We should be going to God's word to know what sin is. Now, if you know the good that you ought to do and do not do it to you, it is sin. But that is to say your conscience is your conscience. Biblical principles are great and excellent and a very necessary guide. But it's not okay for people to become tyrannical and totalitarian or to become licentious and permissive with the fallback of, well, we have principles. Ah, yes, the principle should be you pay attention to the particularities of what God has called us to and not just talk about principles. It's not principled to only care about the principles at the expense of attention to the particulars when God gives us particulars. It's also not particularly principled when you start getting particular where God only gave us principles or where the whole counsel of God would be brought to bear. When it comes to the book of Joshua, this is another one of those places where we are at odds in our day, our values, our assertions, our positions, the hills that we have chosen to die on or not die on, as the case may be. We should be more careful to examine. And in the way that we talk about all of the above, if we're not prepared for there to be a retooling of our sensibilities, then what are we doing? Why are we coming to the text? Coming back to the first chapter of Joshua in particular, we have an answer to Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. And so there is a certain sense in which there are specific orders that are being given, and that is part of submission to authority that is appropriate don't get me wrong, but everywhere it's Joshua giving the order, it is Joshua giving the orders. And when it's Moses before Joshua doing this or saying that, it's not always correct. It's not always a good example to follow. But if we get it mixed up, if we get it mixed up that here is God speaking and then there is Joshua speaking, very quickly we become idolatrous and we start to worship at the altar of this man when we should only worship Yahweh our God. Very quickly, when they go into sin and folly, we follow right after them instead of hanging back because God has commanded us to not do that thing. God has commanded us to do this other thing. And I don't think it's too much to ask that people would be honest, that we would be honest if it is an instruction from us because Paul the Apostle does that in the New Testament. Paul the Apostle says, not I, but the Lord in one place as he's talking about marriage. And then in another place, he says, not the Lord, but I, Paul. And so it's not totally irrelevant. It's not as though he's not allowed to have any personal judgments, any private opinions, but he differentiates. And the reason he differentiates is because you are not supposed to just take Paul's word for it. That could be a dangerous thing. Paul even says at a certain place, even if I or an angel come to you preaching another gospel than what was originally given to you, originally taught to you, originally proclaimed to you, in which you believed, by which you are being saved, don't 
believe it. Which is to say, if Paul goes astray, if Paul starts espousing false teaching, don't follow him. Don't listen to him. Be ready to do what Paul did with Peter and say, I rebuke you. You're being a hypocrite. You're undermining the mission. That's where we have to be at. That's the mindset we have to have. But that takes, yes, strength and courage. It takes both and. And we need to become reacquainted as men with the appropriate pursuit and application of strength and courage. I look forward to it here in the book of Joshua. I look forward to us delving in and coming to terms with this because it's very much needed. Switching gears, though, and not by much. Let's talk about the Sunday special that Vodi Bakum and Ben Shapiro sat down for, which I just recently watched the first video for 47 minutes, 18 seconds long on YouTube. It's an excellent discussion, and do yourself a favor. Watch it. Listen to the back and forth. It's a great discussion. The title of the video is, What Does It Mean to Be a Man?, And before I say any more about it, I'll play for you audio from the first part of the video where it's something of the introduction and the highlights reel. I would encourage you, watch the full thing, but here it is, cut one, Vodi Bakum and Ben Shapiro. Take a listen. Christians hear things like social justice and, you know, racial justice, and it's it's like, yeah, you know, of of course, you know, we're, we're for that. Um, marriage equality. Well, am I, am I for marriage in equality? <laughs> um, and, and when you have weak and faulty worldviews and then seductive language, and then you have leaders um, with unclear voices, um, you end up in the mess that we're in. Raised by a Buddhist single mom in Los Angeles, Dr. Vadi Bakum came of age during the height of Malcolm X and felt a pull toward the growing black nationalist movement. However, a conversion to Christianity in college completely reshaped his worldview. Vadi is a skeptic who came to Christ, an outsider who speaks the language of outsiders. He is a man worthy of respect. Vadi is a former pastor, author, and educator, currently serving as Dean of the School of Divinity at African Christian University in Lusaka, Zambia, a university that seeks to transform Africa through biblically-based education. Whether teaching on the history of the Bible or marriage and family, He aims to help ordinary people understand the significance of seeing the world through a biblical lens. Anyone who's heard him preach knows his conviction of word and spirit. He's unafraid to challenge the current social justice movement, continuously demonstrates the Bible's enduring relevance without trying to reshape God in man's image. On this Sunday special, I sit down with Vadi to discuss his unusual path to faith, biblical masculinity, and the woke pastors who have infiltrated Christian churches around the world. Plus, he explains how he came to find his true calling to live and teach in Africa. Okay, <clears throat> cut, and go watch the rest. Not before you finish listening to this podcast, of course, but after, do check out the rest of the video, and there will be a link in the description for this podcast episode, so check that out. But one of the things that struck me as I'm listening to the back and forth, one, the tremendous amount of respect these two men, who I, and many others, have a great deal of respect for, the tremendous amount of respect that they showed for one another in the discussion. Even just in the intro, you hear a respect from Ben Shapiro to Vodi Bakum, and that carries through the entire discussion. There's a lot of common ground. 
There's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of agreement. And of course, there's disagreement as well as to the person of Jesus, for instance. But there's a familiarity. There is a literacy on the part of Ben Shapiro for what Christians believe, what Vody Bakum believes. And he's not hostile. He is listening. He's asking questions. And Ben Shapiro is invested. You might even wonder if this attitude that Ben Shapiro has is informed by Jeremiah 29, which is going to be for a practicing Orthodox conservative Jew that is going to be in his scripture, that's going to be in his Bible, that's going to be in the Old Testament, that's going to be in the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim, that's going to be in his scriptures. Seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh your God has brought you in your exile, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. It makes intuitive sense that Ben Shapiro is interested in what Christians in America believe and whether they believe rightly what Christians historically have professed and acted on for 2,000 years. It's in the interest of Ben Shapiro and his family and his community. It is in his interest to have Vody Bakum on his program and to ask him questions and to listen to him speak and to encourage his audience to listen to Vody Bakum speak. And more of us as Christians in America need to have that same attitude, that same mindset. Ben Shapiro is setting a very good example for us in what it means to seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh our God has brought us in our exile. If we also think of ourselves as exiles, recognize that where we're at in the biblical narrative with Joshua being called to be strong and courageous, be strong and very courageous, all of that to do with taking possession of the promised land, all of the blessings for obedience and the punishment and the curses for disobedience has been fulfilled in the tribes of Israel, the Jews having been scattered throughout the world because their forefathers, their ancestors disobeyed, and only because of God's grace does God remember them, console them, bless them where they go. He has brought them back to Israel and has made them a nation again. They've been a nation in the context of the view of the internationalists, which is a major problem. This is part of why there's so much hostility towards the modern nation of Israel is because there was some aggressive war making, which these internationalists had just signed treaties and made pledges to declare against international law. And yet here was Israel, this nation, this nation for the Jews, of the Jews, by the Jews, self-consciously associating themselves with this land that had been promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet there are still many Jews who live in other parts of the world, the United States, for instance. And so in some sense, those Jews who live in the U.S., like Ben Shapiro and his family, in some sense, they are exiles still. And they're not the only ones by any means. There are a lot of Jews who live here in the U.S. And how do they conduct themselves? How do they relate? How do they engage or do they engage? Do they keep themselves completely separate? Of course, they can't. And actually, they're commanded not to in Jeremiah chapter 29. But then 
Look at this discussion between Ben Shapiro and Vody Bakum. Listen to it. Talking about what does it mean to be a man. And listen to Vody Bakum. This is why I have so much respect for him. And I have since Lauren and I were at Cedarville University and heard him speak for chapel, not once, but twice while we were there. I have so much respect for Vody Bakum because he doesn't pull punches with his own camp. He doesn't show partiality to the churches and the network, the convention that he has been a pastor in. He doesn't show partiality to those who are being complicit. They are being unclear. They are not being strong. They are not being courageous. He doesn't show partiality. He says, no, you're being a coward right now. You're being unclear right now. You're wavering. You're vacillating right now. And the people who follow you leaders are not going to know what to do next because you're not sounding a clear call to action and you're not being faithful and you're not being obedient and you're not testifying to the truth of God's word. You're not agreeing with God when you do that. God is very clear. You're supposed to be very clear. Vody Bakum is somebody I regard as being strong and courageous. I think he's an excellent example of this. He has a beautiful family. I very much appreciate that he is doing what he's doing in Africa with this university, with this school. I very much appreciate his stance on homeschooling. But one of the things he brings up, because this is a major interest for him and it should be a major interest for us, one of the things he brings up in this interview with Ben Shapiro is the woke business and how that's crept into the church as well. And it has corrupted our testimony. It has compromised many pastors, many denominations. But you need to understand that there is this oppression wheel that is in circulation. And it makes a great deal of sense for why so much of the preaching, so much of the biblical teaching so-called, is wayward. Because this oppression wheel is what is being operated from It's the framework that our corporate media presents the news and current events to us through the lens of it's presuppositional, but it's not just presuppositional in the abstract. We all have presuppositions. We all have assumptions that we start with, pre-commitments that we operate from. But this set of presuppositions is characteristically Marxist at the root, this oppression wheel has at the very center of it power and privilege. And I have it up right now on my screen. I'm looking at it. You can look up oppression wheel on Google Images. Do a Google Images search and you'll find lots and lots of examples of this. They're generally the same, very similar. You'll see some differences here and there depending on who put their graphic together. But the one I'm looking at right now has power and privilege at the very center the very core of the oppression wheel. And the next circle reads as follows. White folks, citizens, settler colonizers, able-bodied, cisgender, male, housed, heterosexual, dominant religions. Those characteristics make up the core of power and privilege according to the oppression wheel which is a vehicle for transmitting narratives that are cultural Marxist in nature. 
so as to brainwash and wear people down to accepting Marxist ideas, Marxist plans, Marxist solutions to Marxist problems as they're framed. You can't have people accepting the Marxist solution until you've presented every inequality, every distinction as a Marxist problem. But just think about this for a moment. Think about how this has infected so much popular, trendy Christian teaching and preaching. Power and privilege having to do with white folks. Think back to David Platt a few years ago, getting up on stage at a conference of pastors and making the claim that he is part of the problem because he is a white pastor in America. He is part of the problem. What's the problem? White pastors. Why is that a problem? Unless you have allowed yourself to be infected by this Marxist ideology, which says power and privilege are sins to be repented of. When everything is framed and cast into this oppressor versus oppressed, victimizer versus victim mold, any advantage you have, any privilege, any blessing that you have is a sin because you must have taken it from somebody else. It wasn't given to you. You didn't earn it. You must have taken it from someone else. Therefore, repent and submit to redistribution. Resistance is futile. Prepare to be assimilated. Settler colonizer. Ooh. All right. So buckle up because this business about settlers and colonizers being at the core of power and privilege, for one, it's disingenuous. And that's the first problem with it. There's partiality in the way that this is applied to people in America, for instance. For example, why do I say that? Well, for one thing, we are told that people who come across the border with Mexico into the U.S. illegally and then set up indefinitely in the U.S. without permission, without legal standing, without any documentation to work, to live, to raise their families, or to engage in whatever activities they've come here to engage in, we're told that those people are victims. And if anybody says, hey, listen, we should be stopping them, stop them from coming into the country and send them back where they come from, if we catch them here illegally, we're told that anybody who talks like that, talks about enforcing our borders or controlling who comes in and goes out of our country, anybody who talks like that is an oppressor and these people coming in are the oppressed. But these are settlers. These are colonizers. They are colonizing our country. And are they at the core of power and privilege here? No, 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 they're not if they're not white folks or if they're not citizens. That's how that works, according to the oppression wheel. But if you're a white person, if you're a Christian, if you're heterosexual, if you're cisgendered, if you're male, if you're able-bodied, then yes, you're a colonizer. And then your colonization, your settling in a foreign land is oppression. And you should be rebuked for it. You should be guilt-tripped about it. You should submit to redistribution. You should submit to Marxism. The next one, able-bodied. This is part of where the push for weakness 
to celebrate weakness, to stigmatize strength, strength training, athleticism comes in because the claim is those who are able-bodied discriminate against people with disabilities. And this fits very neatly with the campaign against toxic masculinity because some men are more masculine. Some men are bigger and stronger than other men. Some men work out. They apply themselves. They augment their strength. They eat right. They get good rest. They hydrate. They don't skip leg day. They work out. They exercise. They build their strength. They hunt. They fish. They trap. They pump iron. They shoot. They take a martial art. And that makes weak men feel insecure. And so therefore, will come up with something, right? Anything about those weak men that gives them an excuse. Oh, they can't help it. They're a victim. And then any feelings that they have of being unsafe or feeling insecure or feeling embarrassed, we will blame the men who are strong and courageous for. It's not just people with disabilities so-called because what constitutes a disability has been so expanded. If somebody is anxious, what then? Do we call them disabled? If they occasionally suffer from depression, do we call them disabled? What if they have allergies? Do we call them disabled? What if one leg is a little shorter than the other? Do we call them disabled? I mean, where does it stop? Essentially, what this amounts to is stigmatizing strength and manly vigor in particular, because the next two segments on this second circle of the oppression wheel are cisgendered and male, which is to say, if you're a woman who identifies as male, well, then you are on the outside of this wheel and you're part of the oppressed. But if you are cisgendered, which is to say you are what you were born to be, you are a man who identifies as a man, you are in fact a man who is a male with all the appendages, all the DNA, Y chromosome, all the rest, if you are a cisgendered male, then you are one of the oppressors. You are, by default, by your relative comparative strength, oppressing those who are trans or non-binary or intersex, etc. Also, oh, by the way, you're oppressing females. And how do we know that? Well, because you have more power than females. You're stronger, you're bigger, you're more commanding, you're more assertive, you're more confident, you're more risk-tolerant. Maybe you make more money. Maybe you actually have authority in your work group or in the community or in your church or in your home. And so therefore, because you have more authority, that's not fair. You didn't earn that just because you're a man. But what's lost in all of that is God made them male and female from the beginning and God gave commands because God has authority. And oh, by the way, if power and privilege are all that it takes to classify somebody as an oppressor. The penultimate oppressor is God himself. And that's what this really is all about, ladies and gentlemen. That's why this is so serious. Because to say that a man is an oppressor just by virtue of being a manly man, to say that somebody who's able-bodied is an oppressor just by virtue of being strong and well-built, to say that is ultimately, eventually, to apply it to God and to say that God is the ultimate oppressor because who has more power than God? Who has more privilege than God who is holy and set apart and him only will you worship and serve? Him only should you fear. Who has more power or privilege than God? 
Therefore, who is the most oppressive? According to the Marxist, who is, not coincidentally, ultimately doing the bidding of Satan himself. The next segment here is housed. So those who have homes versus those who are homeless or who are in a precarious housing situation. That's another thing. So what they call that separation or the means of oppression from the housed towards the homeless or those who live in precarious housing situations and arrangements, they call this classism. And so this classism really amounts to the haves and the have-nots. They would say that the haves discriminate against the have-nots. And that can be true, right? That can be a thing, just like men can be oppressive towards women, just like those who are able-bodied can pick on those who are genuinely handicapped through no fault of their own. It's not that they embraced weakness. It's just that they were born with certain disabilities. They were born blind. And it wasn't their sin or their parents' sin, like the Pharisees asked. It can be true. That doesn't mean that it is categorically true that those who own homes should apologize to those who are homeless. That's a very illogical, unreasonable, and ultimately ungodly way to think of it and to frame it. But, you know, I just read Thomas Sowell's book about the housing bubble, published 2009. It was a really excellent read, The Housing Boom and Bust by Thomas Sowell, unraveling the tangled threads that led up to the 2008-2009 financial crisis, which was hugely impactful on the kind of start that Lauren and I had to having children, establishing our household. It was hugely impactful. And so it was a fascinating read for me, thinking back to where we were at in 2008 and 2009, where I was at in my working life and in our housing arrangement. We couldn't afford rent. We were on public assistance. There was double-digit unemployment in Southern Ohio. The jobs that were available didn't pay, didn't offer very good benefits, didn't offer a career path. And I myself was treated very poorly by employers who realized you are so easily replaceable. We're going to look at you with contempt and where are you going to go, right? You're going to take it. You're going to take it, whatever we dish out in the way of mistreatment, harshness, unpleasantness, and we don't need you. We'll replace you like that. First chance we get. Was there a certain abuse of disproportionate power in that scenario? Yes. Would I ever for a moment think of using the oppression wheel to assess, troubleshoot, resolve that? No, 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 no. Now, the problem is the sinful human heart. The solution is obedience to God, repentance, confession, the grace of God, be filled with the Holy Spirit, obey God. That's the solution. But in reading The Housing Boom and Bust, I also come to appreciate that so-called smart growth policies across this country are why there is such a shortage of homes that people can afford. So-called smart growth policies have severely curtailed what land can be developed for homes. And supply and demand dictates what the so-called value of the house is going to be or the property is going to be. If there are only so many properties containing houses that you can buy and there's 
a growing number of people who want to buy a home, the so-called value, which is just whatever the purchaser will pay for it, the value of what limited supply there is goes up and up and up and up and up. And this is part of, not the only part, but part of why there was the financial crisis in 2008 to 2009. Lenders were ordered by Democrats in particular in Congress to issue risky loans for overinflated homes and overinflated, I mean, overvalued because of smart growth policies that were supposed to limit what land could be developed into housing. It turned out that the kinds of loans that were offered up became unaffordable to pay back because the initial low interest rate gave way over time to a higher interest rate, which meant a higher mortgage payment, which also then coincided with other costs of living increasing, the cost of food, for instance, transportation, for instance, utilities, for instance. And so there were bankruptcies. There were lots of bankruptcies. And those bankruptcies basically threatened to bankrupt the lenders themselves. And then what did the federal government do but come in and bail out the major banks saying they were too big to fail, but also, oh, by the way, in many cases, neglecting to mention that it was the government's solution that had caused this problem. And so here they were with another solution, which caused more problems. And they don't learn in part because we don't learn and we don't teach them and we don't require them. We don't hold them accountable. But this housing boom and bust business makes clear that there is a certain privilege which the Democrats and the radical leftists exercise. And when they have the power, they exercise their privileges and their power to the hilt, even if it causes a tremendous amount of harm to young couples like my wife and I were back in 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, when we couldn't afford to even rent a home. So we lived either with my dad or we lived in his second house that he owned, which he had bought when it was inexpensive, relatively speaking. You know, tens of thousands of dollars. That's what these homes were valued at. Now, in the part of the country that we live in, because of supply and demand, because of smart growth, zoning, decisions from Democrats in particular, but not always only Democrats, also wealthy establishment Republicans, because of smart growth policies, what you get is homes that are very modest and not at all fancy or luxurious being priced at and selling for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Why? Because people are moving here from California where they have sold their overinflated California homes for a million dollars, they come into this market, and even if they only had three or $400,000 in equity, so cold, in their home in California that they just sold, that's enough. And they buy because they think it's a screaming deal compared to where they're coming from. And then, pretty soon, you can't buy a house unless you are prepared to pay $400,000. You can't buy a decent-sized home in decent condition in a decent neighborhood unless you're willing to shell out between a third and one half of a million dollars. And so we have this oppression wheel. And this oppression wheel would tell us that those who are housed in a classist way discriminate against those who are homeless. And again, I would encourage you to go back to Joshua chapter 1, where you have these two tribes and the one half tribe 
having settled in the cities, their wives, their children, their livestock, and then going over the Jordan to help their countrymen to get their inheritance as well. As Christians, we should be thinking about the principle there. No, we're not those tribes or those half-tribes. No, we're not Israel. No, this isn't the promised land. No, this isn't Canaan. But it's not the point. That's beside the point when it comes to the unchangeable character of the purposes of God, the unchangeable character of God. There's an appropriateness to those who have a home looking to what it's going to take for those who do not have a home to be able to get a home. And if the policies are broken in this part of the country to where we're going on four years next month, marks four years renting this house for $2,000 a month, not including any utilities at all. There's no end in sight to me and my family needing to rent because we can't afford to buy. Those macroeconomic conditions are a direct result of policies from the radical left here in the U.S. and around the world, but especially here in the U.S., especially here in Colorado. These are policy decisions that are made supposedly to protect, but in actual fact, they foster still more homelessness and more precarious housing situations, claiming to protect, they actually make more vulnerable. By incentivizing weakness and scarcity, they get exactly that. And so if their mandate is predicated on weakness and scarcity, they have every motivation themselves to keep on finding weakness or facilitating weakness, dependence. It's not a healthy scenario. It's not good. And we need men like Vody Bakum and Ben Shapiro sitting down to have this conversation. We need men to speak to it, to engage in it, to deal with it, to confront it. The next segment of this inner circle of power and privilege on the oppression wheel is heterosexual. Heterosexuals are the powerful ones. They're the privileged ones. What do we do about that? Well, we call them homophobic and we take things away from them and we give those things to so-called two-spirit people, which makes me think someone has a demon. If they have two spirits, that sounds an awful lot like demonic oppression. (laughs) That's what that is, biblically speaking. Two spirits, lesbians, gays, bisexuals, transgendered, queer, intersex, asexual, plus. How do you solve this so-called problem of power and privilege for the heterosexuals? Call the heterosexuals homophobes. And use that as your blank check to take away from them, to dishonor them, and if you need to, to destroy them. Next up, you have dominant religions. Dominant religions here, we should understand, in an American context, especially when you look at the outer segment, and it says non-predominant religions, e.g. Judaism, Islam, Hindu, Sikh, what this is describing is Christianity. So the Dominant religion here is a stand-in for Christians in the West, Christians in America. Christians have power and privilege. And so what's the solution? Take away power from them. Take away privileges from them. Oh, but that's not fair. Oh, yes, it is. They're the oppressors. Haven't you read your Howard Zinn? 
So we wonder, right? We otherwise, apart from having this and Vody Bakum to tell us about it, then to explain it very boldly, very courageously, in strong, clear terms, unless we have the likes of a Vody Bakum, unless we have men who are willing to talk like that to the people who actually are doing the preaching and the teaching and the believing and the acting and the voting or in action thing, we are all confused. Like, why are they coming after the Christians? Why, why, if a trans activist or a so-called marriage equality activist is acting the fool and being rude, disruptive, violating noise ordinances, why do the cops not do anything about it? But if a Christian stands on the sidewalk and also amplifies their voice as they're reading scripture, why why is the Christian getting arrested? Why is the Christian getting roughed up? Why is the Christian being hauled off to jail? Why is that? Ah, well, this oppression wheel will help you to make sense of it. This oppression wheel explains it perfectly. In fact, I'm going to play for you another clip here. This will be cut to, featured over at Not the Bee, published the day before yesterday, August 2nd, a tweet from Ben Zeisloft, who frequently writes for The Daily Wire. This is Marcus Schroeder you're going to be hearing from the young man who was arrested for reading the Bible, to quote Ben Zeisloft, reading the Bible at a drag queen event in Watertown, Wisconsin, preached the gospel to the city council and residents concerned about the Nazi presence at the event. Without further ado, here's cut two. Take a listen. Guys, I hope you're all doing good tonight. I just wanted to ask a simple question. I know, you know, a Nazi group showed up at the event Saturday and people were talking about that. And I just wanted for all of us to really think about this. What's wrong with Nazism? Like, seriously, what's wrong with Nazism? Because imagine for a moment that there is no God above us, no hell below us, no heaven to live for, as John Lennon wanted to imagine. If we are truly the result of evolved stardust and our ancestors were fish and were the descendants of monkeys, then where do we find our value as human beings? What's wrong with Nazism unless if you understands that the God of Scripture says that we are made in his image? And so to murder innocent people is a violation to God's commands. As a Christian, I can say that Nazis, what the Nazis did in Nazi Germany was completely horrific and that they should have been resisted. In fact, the, the number one people group that resisted the Nazis were Christians. And the, and the reason why, the reason why was because they had a worldview that says that people are made in God's image and that they have worth and value. That's why Nazism is wrong. But if we're going to reject the Christian worldview, then we can't hold on to the fruit that comes from the Christian worldview while denying the actual foundation. Intolerance is an interesting word. Tolerance, intolerance, hatred, love, bigotry, things like that. Because really every culture has something that it's intolerant towards and something that it's tolerant of. I mean, there are things like murder and rape and, and you know, stealing and, and just crimes that we are intolerant towards as a society. And, and so every society has something it's intolerant towards. The question is just, what is our object of intolerance and what is our object of tolerance? When I showed up Saturday, all I did was read from Scripture on the sidewalk. I read from the Bible, Galatians. And by the way, I wasn't reading Romans 1. I wasn't reading any passage that spoke against homosexuality or anything like that. I was reading a passage from the Bible about love. And I was arrested 
No reason, not given any warning, not told anything about my amplification needed to be turning down. I was arrested and taken into custody simply for reading the Bible on the sidewalk. You see, as we become more and more tolerant of sexual immorality in our culture, we've become more and more intolerant towards Christian morality. And the more we become intolerant towards Christian morality, the more we're going to see lawlessness in our streets. The more we become intolerant of Christian morality, the more we're going to see Nazis. The more we're going to see people who don't hold to a Christian worldview, who think that everybody is a result of animals, and therefore if we are animals, then why can't we just act like animals? We were called a hate group. We were told that we don't want to understand the other side, and I just want to set the record straight. I am more than happy to have that conversation with the other side. I did speech and debate throughout high school, and one of the things that we were taught in debate is that you can't make an argument for your side until you're able to make the argument for the other side. I've sat down and had hours of discussions with LGBTQ activists. I completely understand the other side. I want to understand the other side. But drag queens twerking on kids in lingerie is unacceptable. And that's something that we have to notice as a culture. We can have our disagreements, but there comes a time when we have to understand that we are all going to stand before God one day. And we're going to have to give an account for what we have done with the children in our society, the innocent minds and the children who deserve to be protected. Thank you. Amen. Amen, and so well stated, and so respectfully stated, and so clearly stated, and that is strength, and that is courage, and that is what God calls us to. Marcus Schroeder is being an exemplary young man in that video clip, and in the earlier video clip, which is posted in the story, there's a link to another not to be post, wherein you watch this young man, get arrested by the police in Wisconsin on Tuesday. This young man was standing there on the sidewalk in a public space, and just across from him in the park is this drag queen event, and he's reading from the Bible, and the police come out in force and arrest him, take away his microphone, handcuff him, perp walk him. What was his crime? What did he do? You can clearly hear, even though the drag queen event is probably a hundred yards or more away, you can clearly hear sound amplification coming from the drag queen event at the park. And the police are protecting that speech and they are discriminating against this young man in his speech. And as the video is being shot Others who are with this young man are asking the question, what are you doing? This is against the law. This is unconstitutional. What you cops are doing here is against your oath to uphold the Constitution. This is a violation of this young man's civil liberties, his civil rights. No response. It takes a lot of courage for Marcus Schroeder to not just do what he did and get arrested for it. It takes a lot of courage for him to show up at the city council and speak as clearly, as confidently, as correctly as he does there, preaching the gospel to them without being rude, without being obnoxious, without being disrespectful, but also without compromising the truth of God's word. A hard truth, but an important truth. Every society tolerates certain behaviors and does not tolerate other behaviors. 
what we are seeing right now is a growing intolerance towards Christianity in public, coinciding with growing toleration of the so-called oppressed class doing whatever they want to do, whatever they want to do to children even, the most innocent. You know, that's the irony of all of this is that going back to the oppression wheel, who has the power and the privilege? The adults, the Democrats, the radical left, the drag queens, the Antifa thugs, Black Lives Matter rioters. They have power. They have privilege. They're flexing. Their anger is not at being oppressed. Their anger is actually showing itself because they know they have the upper hand. Their anger is showing itself because they keep on getting rewarded. Their contempt for, yes, citizens, white folks, (laughs) Christians, heterosexuals, those who have some property, those who are male and identify as male, the able-bodied, who are of European descent, their contempt for all of the above is not because they have been oppressed. It's because they have a blank check to oppress, to bear false witness. If the problem is a Marxist problem, the solution is going to be a Marxist solution. It's going to be communism. If the problem is we've sinned against a holy and righteous God, the solution is going to be whatever God says is the solution to atone for that sin, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, saying Jesus is Lord, confessing your sins, repenting, turning away from those sins, turning towards obedience and righteousness because you love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's going to be the solution. Righteousness exalts a nation. That's the solution. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. That's the solution. But if we have leaders who are unmanly, who are cowardly, who are filled with selfish ambition and vain conceit and the fear of man, then they will mix in the Marxist problem and solution with their gospel presentation. And then it's not actually the gospel that saves. It's a false gospel. It's a false teaching. At that point, they become blind guides and hypocrites, but just so. On the other hand, if they're bold, if they're strong and courageous because God fights for them and it is God's pleasure they seek, well then, his word will not return void of power. His word will not fail to accomplish what it was sent to do. For one more story this episode, let's talk briefly about a article I found on MSN republished from the Premier Daily, a story by Jade Small, Why Archaeologists Are Fearful of Looking Inside the Tomb of China's First Emperor. Jade Small writes, The Terracotta Army, an awe-inspiring archaeological wonder, is a testament to the grandeur and vision of China's first emperor, Qin Shi Huang. Hidden within the sprawling tomb complex in the ancient city of Xi'an, this incredible display of craftsmanship and historical significance has captivated the world since its discovery in 1974. Since it was first explored, there is still one tomb that was left unopened. It belonged to the emperor himself. To this day, archaeologists are too afraid to open it. Here's why. Now, what follows after this is a little bit more about the Terracotta Army, 
before they get into the next section, why are archaeologists afraid to open the emperor's tomb? Picking back up, Jade Small writes, the terracotta army is not the only figure found in the tomb's complex. There were also figures, and by the way, the terracotta army is not a figure, it's an army of figures, but nevertheless, there were also figures from the court and others thought to be beloved by the emperor who were entombed with him in 1974. The tomb was discovered miraculously in the Shaanxi province of China. Since then, archaeologists have explored the outer tombs in detail, but one tomb remains a mystery and will remain so for some time. Why? Well, one thing is for sure. It's definitely not because they are too afraid of what they might find inside the tomb. This is definitely not an Indiana Jones movie. Archaeologists hesitate to explore the tomb due to genuine concerns about the potential damage. In other words, no one wants to risk losing the historical discovery or the information that could come with it. The currently available techniques for entering the tomb are invasive and pose a high risk of causing irreparable harm. This has left them cautious about going forward. They're learning from Heinrich Schleiman's mistakes and his explorations of Troy in the 1870s. His haste and lack of experience led to the inadvertent destruction of nearly all remnants of the very city he aimed to reveal. Archaeologists are determined not to repeat such careless mistakes and are keen on exercising patience and precision during their endeavor. Now, get this. Here's the next piece. Some fear perilous hazards inside the tomb, awaiting anyone who dared open it. This was described in a text written by an ancient Chinese historian, Sima Qian, approximately a century after the passing of Emperor Qin Shi Huang. Sima Qian wrote, quote, palaces and scenic towers for a hundred officials were constructed and the tomb was filled with rare artifacts and wonderful treasure. Craftsmen were ordered to make crossbows and arrows primed to shoot at anyone who enters the tomb. Mercury was used to simulate the hundred rivers, the Yangtze and Yellow River and the Great Sea and set to flow mechanically. So the excavators might be able to surpass the arrows, but the toxic mercury is a massive problem. Researchers have validated the concerns because they have recorded high amounts of mercury surrounding the tomb, so the tomb remains unopened until they have discovered less invasive exploring methods. However, they are currently investigating non-invasive methods. Now, let me just say, I don't find this article to be particularly well-written. I just don't. It's curious to me that outlets like the Daily Wire get pressure from the White House exerted on social media companies to suppress their content which is comparatively well-written, not perfect. I still encounter occasional typos and things that I think are kind of clunky. But this, this is a bit amateur. It's just not very well-written in many ways. But it's funny to me. It's funny that on the one hand, you have a very legitimate sounding reason. We're concerned about damaging the artifacts. We're concerned about damaging the archaeological site itself. We don't want to do that, so we're looking into less invasive methods of exploring the tomb. But then you have the admission that, well, it also is uh, booby-trapped. We have a reason to believe. And there's also toxic mercury we're concerned about. And it's like, okay, well, so you're not worried at all about what you're going to find, but you are worried about what you're going to find. So... (laughs) You aren't being courageous here. You're not. And and you're not even really being entirely honest if you're saying, well, there's booby traps. And for that matter, too, we don't want to damage anything. Well, you are concerned about what you're going to find in there. You're concerned about booby traps. So you're not being honest. 
you are concerned, you're afraid of damaging the artifacts. And I think some care and caution is good to not damage the artifacts. I don't have a problem with that, but this is not courageous. And you can sense that there's a little bit of an insecurity that it will be seen as not courageous. And so they don't want to own up to that. But then what's that about? It's shameful to be a coward. I mean, think about the potential for glory if you find treasures, if you unearth texts, if you learn something fantastic about ancient China and the ancient world generally that you didn't know, something very surprising that you didn't think would be found in there that reveals ancient China was far more advanced than we presumed. But then correspondingly, if you damage the site because you didn't excavate it properly, you didn't get into the tomb properly, all that glory actually turns into contempt. You don't get the glory, you get the contempt because you damaged the site. Now, brings the question, if there are booby traps and you're not worried about the booby traps, why is this tomb so especially fragile? Or is it that your reputation is so fragile? Or is it that you care more about your life than you do about exploring what's in that tomb? And if that's the case, I say, that's fine, right? That's fine. Speaking of Indiana Jones, there's that great scene in The Last Crusade where there's the option to save the Holy Grail. There's the option to save that cup that Christ drank from or to escape this yawning chasm and live. And what does Sean Connery's character, Indiana Jones's father, say to him? What does he say to him? Let it go, son. So there's wisdom to that, but own it, right? Own up to it. Admit it. Admit that you're afraid for your life and that there may be some very sophisticated and still very much intact traps that would end you if you got in there. You might get sick. You might die. You might be poisoned. You might be impaled. You might be shot full of crossbow bolts. Obviously, my first interest here is not in the tomb of China's first emperor. That's not my chief reason for bringing this up, although I do find all of that fascinating, and I love archaeology. I love history. My first reason to bring this up is that that has a corollary. There's an equivalent for Christians living the Christian life, wherein we say there are great treasures behind this text. And if we embrace what the text says, and if we explore that, if we flesh that out, if we live it, if we communicate it, we share it with others, we apply it to decisions that we need to make together, political situations, social controversies, if we apply this and call people to repentance and call them to not just stop engaging in certain things, but to start obeying, to proactively, positively obey what God has commanded, well, there are booby traps. What if this? What if that? What if this other thing? You know, all of the ways that it could go wrong, all the ways it could go badly. When we're focused on those things, we're not focused on obedience. And we're not being strong and courageous. If you're not quite ready yet, well, count the cost. That's wise. Jesus says to do that. But be honest about it. Don't spiritualize it. Don't make excuses for it. Own it. Own that you're kind of chickening out. Don't find a way 
to turn the Christians who are faithfully executing or endeavoring to into the oppressors. You're the victim. You're being oppressed because they, by their example, made you feel insecure, or by their word, they corrected you, they contradicted you, they challenged you. However great the treasure is, in the emperor's tomb, there's a lot more treasure to be had if we as Christians will study God's word, obey, trust, love, follow, live for our God. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I have to run. It's a Friday and there's plenty to do today, speaking of doing and living. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.